0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Joe Davis. He is the chief economist and global head of investment strategy at the giant $5 trillion Vanguard Group. If you are at all interested in a very non-traditional economic discussion, then you're going to find this conversation fascinating. We talk about global trade, but not who's selling what and what tariffs are in the way. We talk about the trade in ideas and the global exchange of technology and how things like the Internet have allowed the entire world to become richer, more productive, uh, lowering certain um, negative aspects of economic growth, and really helping to raise up the entire uh, world economy and world standard of living. This is a fascinating, wonky conversation that I think you will find absolutely intriguing. So with no further ado, my conversation with the Vanguard Group's Joe Davis. My special guest this week is Joe Davis. He is a principal at Vanguard and is the firm's chief economist, as well as the global head of the Vanguard Investment Strategy Group. He's also a member of the senior portfolio management team uh, for Vanguard's fixed income group. Joe Davis, welcome to Bloomberg. Uh, Thanks, Barry. Thrilled to be here. So I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you because there are so many things I wanted to go over with you about the state of the economy and indexing and vanguard tell us how you found your way to vanguard you, it turns out you were born very close to the vanguard yeah. headquarters Is so, that I, true? so i
1: grew up uh literally 10 minutes from vanguard's building i never thought i would end up working at vanguard uh like a lot of things in life i have my parents to thank for why i'm actually at vanguard mm-hmm. so i'm coming out of grad school do my own job search You know, I'm 31 years old, so, of course, I thought I knew everything.
0: And you went to grad school? At Duke. Okay, that's what I recall. So I
1: really wanted to go to the private sector, not in academia, Mm -hmm. and uh, thought I was going up to to New York City uh, to work on the sell side. And uh, my dad pulls me aside and says, hey, have you ever thought about applying to, to Vanguard? So of course, again, I'm 31. I say, what Vanguard, that index company? They don't need an economist. And (laughs) uh, he says, well, do you mind if I take your your resume and give it to someone over there? And uh, turns out they were just starting a research group Mm -hmm. uh, to supplement Uh, Jack Bogle, who was obviously uh, uh, continues to be a luminary in the field. And uh, I was, and so next you know, I'm interviewing at Vanguard. It's 2002, and uh, I was uh, to this day I was impressed with the talent of the professionals I'm at, at Vanguard with, mm-hmm. with with no egos. Sorry, and, that's, and that's over 15 years ago, Barry.
0: That's quite intriguing. So as I was preparing some standard economic questions yeah. to talk to you about the Federal Reserve and the yield curve and everybody's yeah. favorite indicators, I came across a conversation that you had recently where your 13-year-old daughter asked you the question, hey, dad, is the world getting any better? That's kind of fascinating from a 13-year-old, but my question for you is what was your answer <laughs> well you know my my
1: instinct was
0: uh it depends and that's of course that's not
1: that's not satisfactory um but a standard uh, economic response you know my, my daughter really got me thinking I, I remember sitting at the kitchen table barry and I said to myself, you know, I should know the answer to this question pretty quickly, and mm-hmm. and I'm I'm going to fail seventh grade because that was the <laughs> question to a seventh grade essay. Um, that ended up becoming a whole uh, research project uh, because where I zeroed in on uh, is if the world's getting if the world's going to get better, that means the rate of innovation, what we call the rate of productivity, has to has to accelerate. And why anyone should care about that is because then the standard of living. For people around the world is increasing, and we that that rate of increase has been, uh, you know, declining since 2000, long before mm-hmm. the the global financial crisis, and and so we stumbled on, you know, what is going to lead to higher rates of growth, innovation for you know more inclusive growth across the world, and something we didn't inspect to find, we actually we believe we found what potentially is the first leading indicator for innovation uh, that suggests, just right now, that uh, innovation may, and growth, may accelerate five to six years
0: in the future. So Steven Pinker, a linguist at Harvard, wrote a book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and his takeaway was, well, the headlines are just worse and worse, but if you put aside the headlines and actually look at the data, uh, infant mortality, Mm -hmm. um, nutritional, lack of nutrition and and starvation, uh, capital crimes, war, um, all these things have been going down and been going down for 50 years on a global basis. Why is it that that is such a challenging question? Why does it not feel like things are getting better, when they clearly are getting better everywhere.
1: Yeah, and I remember routing off some of those statistics uh, you know, to my daughter. Um, you know, Steve's book, uh, Hans Rosling, for years, sure. also talked about that. Great, great example. Um, I think part of it is th- those are slow-moving trends. So we just don't fixate on them because they're not moving up and down very quickly. Um, those are years and decades. Yeah, years and decades. The other thing is, I, 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 listen, I, I can't prove this, bear. I think part of this is happiness is relative in life. Mm-hmm. Right. There's relative a lot of behavior. Well, rel- it depends to relative to, you know, so it's relative to your peers, well, I relative think the, to I, 10 I minutes. I think ago. you can explain the paradox of said you have, you know, general trends in the world. A lot of trends are better. Lower violence, uh, increased wealth around the world. Look what's happened in China. Yet you have rising income inequality. Mm-hmm. so that's where you can you can you can i think you can reconcile some of this paradox by saying that's where the relative matters as much as the absolute i don't I justify that position mm-hmm. but uh i think that has been lost sight of but the fact is i think in the financial markets and as investors we focus more on uh corporate earnings growth those economic fundamentals that perhaps may fall outside of
0: gdp so let's talk about the productivity issue yep. that you yep. you mentioned i so I work in a space where productivity has been exploding. Yeah. And so, on a relative basis, yeah. to answer to respond to what you said earlier, it seems to me like productivity growth is is booming. Why do we not see productivity growth throughout the whole economy? And is that a measurement issue, or is yeah. it a genuine lack of productivity problem?
1: Yeah, I think that there's there's three potential uh, reasons why. And again, we should care because if productivity is really going to return. Bob Gordon's got that great book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth. And, you know, other than the late 90s, we haven't seen a material pick up in, in productivity. And again, it feels all around us. Barry, right? I mean, technological disruption, innovation, technology—it seems like it should be there. So, one, it could be mismeasured. I don't buy that argument. We've looked at some of it. If it's mismeasured, it's second order. I mean, mm-hmm. GDP and those sort of statistics have always been mismeasured. Right. Um, and I've done a lot of economic historical work to 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 justify, you know, to to justify that 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 position. Secondly, um, is that it? We're permanently. Uh, there's some making the argument, some really smart people that I respect making the argument. I mean, you hear it in, in phrases of secular stagnation. You hear it of, oh, ideas are harder to come by, uh, that that productivity is permanently impaired. I don't huh. buy that either. The third one is I believe that um, th- that there's an implementation phase that that the global economy is working through. Again, demographics aside, I'm talking about output per person, income per person, um, that we will see a material rise in productivity. I, I can't tell you the, the the day or the week, Barry, but our our work, some of which we've done, we can get into, we call the idea multiplier. We believe is the world's first leading indicator of commercial innovation. That actually mm-hmm. will show up on statistics, and we believe that that is in the process of occurring. Um, uh, but it's gonna take a little bit of time. And again, there's a historical analogy to this. In the past two periods in in long US history, over 200 years, there was two periods in time, uh, at least when productivity is as low as it is today, in a period of profound technological disruption. It happened during the the mid-19th century when steam engines and locomotives were expanding sure. across the economy. Uh, but there was a 10 to 15 year period uh, after a financial crisis, ironically, when, uh, when growth and productivity was at a standstill. And yet investment in new technology was starting to pick up.
0: So how much of an impact does the financial crisis have on Either actual innovation or the measurement of innovation in the following decade. Yeah,
1: well, I believe, and in, in, in some of the work we've done shows that most industrial revolutions. We can debate whether there's been two, three, or four. Um, they generally have two broad phases. The first one is the first euphoria that can last ten or twenty years. That's when the the, the, the first technology, the, the general purpose technology, steam engine, electricity, the computer, when it's 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 built and it's introduced to the marketplace. Think of right routers and and hardware in the late 90s. That's the first phase. That typically then happens a period of euphoria with that, financial bubbles, there's uh, economic damage. Um, What I think is lost, though, the more powerful phase is the second phase. Because what general purpose technology changes the world when it changes business models and it changes how companies do things that have nothing to do with the original technology. And that's where um, some call it now AI, artificial intelligence. It's just effectively computer software at a more advanced pace. That is the more profound pace. And I think we are starting to enter that. Um, and so the, that's where we will see the, the the productivity gains is is all the other occupations and industries across the country using that sort of computer
0: uh, technology quite fascinating Uh, let's talk a little bit about innovation and creativity following the dot-com bust you began hunting for a formula to determine what it is that drives innovation in the world as well as Human creativity—you called it the ideas multiplier—to yeah. D- discuss that research.
1: Well, we, you know, we, we were trying to answer the fundamental question, Barry, and again, I don't, we believe we fully answered it, but we, we, I think, we have better insight into explaining this paradox in the world low productivity and measured rates of innovation, Yeah, we got technological disruption all around us. Mm-hmm. And where our research led us is to say, what ultimately leads to uh, profound increases in economic growth, whether it's in China or the US, it's that genuine rate of innovation, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what we did is we looked at, say, well, if, if, if productivity, whether it's low or high, ultimately what that means is the, 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 the amount or the number of valuable ideas being created in the world, ideas for a new widget, new computer, new business model, new product—that has to be depressed now. Um, and if we can, if if we can look at what is occurring in the world and the globalization, the trade of ideas across countries, then we can get a sense of where the new ideas will come from, if 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 at all. If well,
0: they'll accelerate. So so let me try to unpack that yeah. a little bit because that's a really loaded, multi-part observation. Yeah. First. My assumption has always been new ideas bubble up constantly, and while we may not know if it's coming from Boston or San Francisco or New Delhi or Beijing, human ingenuity is constantly trying new things and putting different things together. But what you're implying is new ideas ebb and flow yes. in a cycle of sorts. Yes. Is that... Am yeah. I, am I, I mean, there's, yeah, even a hundred... That's a fascinating years, yeah, concept. It's a fascinating...
1: There's like long waves. Now, you can smooth any time series and you can find this, but long rays of innovation through time. In fact, in the United States, we've had at least nine periods when productivity on a 10-year basis has been zero. Really? 10 years. Now... Just because it's it's been zero nine previous times doesn't mean we're going to rebound out of this one because that's where we're at in the previous ten
0: years. Is zero now? When you say zero productivity, on a trailing basis, right? Okay. The, the, on,
1: on, I'm talking the trend. Forget the. So day, what the happens day-to-day. is is
0: a giant drop in productivity yeah. because of a yeah. all the job economists, losses.
1: Economists, myself included, uh, you know, I to going back to my daughter's question, I didn't have a good answer because economists generally treat the productivity as a residual. Right. Meaning we don't really know what what why it goes up and down through time because ultimately it leads to where are new ideas coming from. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you answer where new ideas are coming from? So what we started looking at is what drives when it, uh, the rates of idea creation accelerate and decelerate through time. Hmm. And what we did is is we actually we actually traced the creation of every valuable idea in the world over the past 40 years. It was over two billion records. And what I mean by that is we care not just by, about some idea being created, because there's a lot of, quite frankly, a lot of bad ideas. We wanna care about, can we trace the, 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 the spawning and, and spreading of valuable ideas? Think of things like the internet, but things that even are smaller in scale, which create new businesses, new opportunities. And we looked around the world, and what we found is actually the most powerful part of globalization because globalization is under attack with trade, Mm -hmm. is the trade of ideas, right? The fact that there's more knowledge and ideas being created in China, which is actually now leading to further additional ideas in the United States and vice versa. And so what we found is uh, that that this, what we call the idea multiplier, how many future ideas are created by one good idea. Mm -hmm. In 1980, that ratio was roughly 40 to one.
0: 40 to To one. To 41.
1: It picked up in 1992. It actually told us, had we had the data back in 1992, that there was something coming five years later in the computer industry. It was called now the internet. Mm -hmm. Because the rate of ideas and being discussed in academia and patent applications and academic research, which is the signals, that's where the data we were using, two billion records, you could see that sort of high energy state in those fields. And it's been dormant for the past 10 years, which I think helps to rectify some of this, what some call the new normal, is because the rate of new influential ideas, commercial ideas, mm-hmm. has kind of plateaued around 200 ideas to one.
0: And you're, and you're suggesting that this is cyclical and temporary and down the road. I, well, should... what we
1: just picked up is so the data and we were, sh- I was shocked to find. In fact, we had the team crunch it four different times. Um, a lot of that, what we found is now just in the past year, that idea multiplier went from 200 to 1 to over 400
0: to 1. So in other words, this is now starting to it, tail This is up. a lead and
1: indicator. Th- this idea multiplier, when you look at its rate of change, tends to lead actual productivity growth four or five years in the future. I know it sounds crazy, but the ideas that we're tracing in our leading indicator are ideas in academic research, medical research it's uh, patent applications and how they're being cited. Uh, Every journal and every book that has ever been written over the past 40 years, we look at all those ideas and not only that, all the citations of all that research and what ideas they are citing. And when you look at all that data, you can then identify what are influential ideas that are spreading. And what we found, to my shock, is that there was five fields we've found now that have the higher idea multiplier than what the computer technology industry had in 1992. What are those five fields? Those five are in order. One is around materials. I, I th- it may have to do with batteries. It couldn't. So I can't batteries, tell you. Batteries, nanotechnology. I I yeah, I, can't, I cannot tell you what game changing ideas will occur, but I can. We can have some sense of where the fields are. Hey, look at ro- just just look Excuse here me. in Manhattan. There yeah. are
0: now high rises that are yeah. these tiny, skinny pencil, bigger than the Empire yeah. State Building. The only reason that exists is the technology for the spines of those buildings. It's no longer steel. It's a form of carbon graphite. The carbon fiber. That that you can make lighter and smaller and stronger. You couldn't have built that 30 years ago. So
1: I told my daughters, the three the, three jumped. Again, they have a higher idea multiplier today than computers did in 1992, so 1993. So material science is material one. Material science is one. Second is, actually, I'll give you four. Mm-hmm. Second is actually oncology,
0: the finding of cancer Incredible research. progress yeah. being happened.
1: Um, that's encouraging for my personal so family. So we will beat
0: cancer in our lifetime. Is that That what you're, I don't know. I don't know. I'm putting words I, in I, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would not say <laughs> that.
1: The third is actually around uh, agriculture, plant sciences.
0: Increasing yield, yeah, increasing I, I That, I,
1: again, we, you know, we... I don't, I'm not good enough or smart enough to tell you exactly what new product will come out, but there is something big in the pipeline. A few like years
0: ago, Monsanto patented the ability to create rice that was saltwater resistant. So if you're in parts of, let's call India and Pakistan and yeah. Malaysia, where it's the staple crop, but there are frequent floodings, which yeah. can destroy regular, uh, most crops are sensitive yeah. to salt. This is salt it's, resistant. It's fascinating. And then
1: the, the largest one that has the by far the
0: highest multiplier is uh, is genetics
1: and genomics research really? Yeah, I mean it's off the makes chart. sense, right? But it's what? off the chart. I mean it's it's over two X where computers were again just a f- you know relative comparison because what's an idea multiplier again? We're introducing a new concept into mm-hmm. this debate. It's effectively you know that that that's in genetics and ironically, do you see how I I did not mention AI in any of the fields? You did not, that's correct. Because what is happening is, AI is incredibly important, I'll call it brawly, computer technology, digital technology, they are being used by all these industries. That's a general purpose technology. The ultimate new game change on ideas will come out, I believe, from one of those, if not more of those fields I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. But they perhaps could not have come up with some of those answer applications without computer. Probably, like, we probably couldn't perhaps do this podcast without the computer and software sure. technology that you have today. We could, it so. would just be two people having a cup
0: of coffee. Yeah, That's what the technology yeah, allows us right. to do. So I have to ask you a question about one of those titles. Global Head of Vanguard Investment Strategy. What is this group? What does it do? Why does Vanguard have a global head of investment strategy?
1: Thanks, Barry. Uh, ultimately, uh, thought leadership. Mm-hmm. So, uh, our job, uh, the investment strategy group's job. It's a group in, in existence roughly fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually the, the the group I was hired into, and um, you know our job is to is to help uh, investors uh, be successful uh, and help them. Uh, provide them with perspective on the problems they're trying to solve. So if it is, what does Vanguard think, dot, dot, dot. And if the next word or phrase is, what's our view on the long-term trends in the economy and what are reasonable expected returns that would be investment strategy group mm-hmm. if it would be on what are viable retirement income and uh, and investor behavior concerns and issues uh, this would be that group it would be what's the role of a, an asset or sub-asset class factors commodities? what's that role in the portfolio uh, we would help through research as well as uh, computer analytics uh, to th- help investors or our, our internal business partners those that provide advice, those that provide counsel to advisors, institutions, or individual investors, we would help them through the research that we conduct. So we're ultimately a research arm uh, of the company, um, but we're increasingly doing a lot through uh, computer development as well as speaking to clients uh,
0: and prospects uh, on the road. So what I'm not hearing in the list of things that this group does is you're not forecasting the economy, you're not forecasting the market, you're not... Making recommendations to rotate out of this sector into yeah. a different sector, not unexpected from yeah. the Vanguard Group. Who? What is yeah, it yeah. about two thirds of the assets are yeah. broadly indexed?
1: Yeah. Although I tell you, when I when I first came to Vanguard, I, I and I'll, I'll never forget the question uh, was. Uh, Why does Vanguard need an economist? Mm -hmm. It's still a good question I get asked. So Uh, why does Vanguard need an uh, economist? I think ultimately because um, for two reasons. One is ultimately asset allocation, which we all know is the most important decision any investor has to make, ultimately is a function of the expected returns and volatilities you assume for that portfolio. Mm. Now, you can use long run history. But why should you do it? Are things different? Secondly, so that's important, and and so how do you think through the, forming the sort of viable return and risk expectations? I think the job of our our, our team is to help do that in a reasonable way, and secondly, mm-hmm. is to convey the risks in the marketplace to help investors make decisions under uncertainty. I'm very proud of our framework. You know, we refuse to release short-term point forecasts. Right. I I, I, I we we have a, a mantra at Vanguard: we will shall not produce point forecasts. Uh, we can produce forecasts. I think that's helpful. If We show the range of distributions. Our job is to, in a very statistical, rigorous way, what is the range of expected returns or outcomes for the markets, uh, for the economy, uh, for the assets uh, that we care about.
0: But that probabilistic approach Mm -hmm. is very different than. So, really, the question isn't why does Vanguard have an economist, a chief economist? Really, the question is. How is Vanguard's chief economist different from the typical chief economist yeah. at most Wall Street firms? Because yeah. that's really and, and I and I respect
1: it. many of my colleagues. Um, you know, I, I read their research. Uh, I'd say, you know, where we where we differ is is in the is in the shift of our horizon and where we focus on. Mm-hmm. So we spend, I mean, for example, I, I I tell my team we should not be spending much time trying to divine what the latest GDP number will be. Right. We care about it. We'll give a high-level glance, but we care more about investigating. Longer-term trends, like such as technology, globalization, demographics, debt. Why we care about that? Because that ultimately change, alter the trend for growth, for short-term interest rates, which is a building block for all expected returns, and the mm-hmm. risk premiums you and I hope to harvest mm-hmm. over our investment uh, horizon. So um, not to say those other exercises aren't important, but we focus much more on the longer term trends and the risk, uh, the development of China, how that's altering the relationship with the U.S. rather than just the data flow, as I call it, day-to-day, week-to-week. I, I, th- I think uh, you know, economists should not spend as much time as we do at times on, on, on those sort of short-term signals.
0: So when you're talking about trends, you're not talking about quarters and years. you're mm-hmm. talking about decades, yeah. long secular yeah. trends that are very significant. Yeah. Now to help the you know to
1: influence it's just an input to our portfolio management team on the fixed income side. Obviously they're active bond managers, our view on the Federal Reserve matters. Our view on growth, what's the risk of recession? We will estimate all those. We don't tend to publish them in high frequency externally for clients, but it's part of the active management process. But again, mm-hmm. it's all in that distributional setting. I talked to you before, Barry. We're trying to, and this is just as hard. There, one, one, one problem is not easier to solve than the others. We're just trying to focus. If we can nail the sort of trend and have better sense, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. For 10 years, we have not been concerned of a a rapid increase in core inflation in the US or almost any other market. One of the reasons why is we looked at the role of technology and how that is depressing. We quantified the role of technology in digital computers is actually probably subtracting 50 basis points a year from core inflation. So that matters because that gets to what are reasonable expectations for the Federal Reserve? What are reasonable expectations for long-term ten, or for the 10-year treasury? Mm-hmm. Again, we will never have a crystal ball. Our job is to say, what are the risks and what are the factors helping to drive these longer-term trends? And I'm proud of, you know that's where our marginal uh, hour, our marginal dollar is spent, is trying to get a, glean a little bit more insight in those longer-term trends. So,
0: so let's stay with the tr- longer-term trend yeah. with inflation. Uh, deflationary forces such yep. as um, manufacturing economies of scale coming out of places yep. like China, but also India and Turkey and Vietnam yep. and elsewhere. Um, but that's offset from some of the longer-term trends on things like education and healthcare, which have been yep. way above average. Yep. How do you look at that trend and what does that do to the overall... Inflation picture and, and everything else associated. Well,
1: I think two things. One thing that's been and statistically we could you know I could show you it's it's irony. One of the reasons why inflation it's although possible is unlikely to rise materially in your and I's lifetime is because you and I and everyone else in the marketplace believes that it won't. It's infl. It's so economists generally talk about anchored inflation expectations. Really, it's around psychology. Anchored, like ho- anchored mm-hmm. inflation expectations, right? It's the tips markets breaking inflation. Uh, central bankers will use well anchored inflation expectations. Really, what this matters is is that we we believe the, the we believe in the Federal Reserve's credibility in achieving a roughly two percent. And so, inflation expectations matter, which means it's less likely to core inflation to go above it or below it. And now you overlay that with the trends in technology, and we have long believed that generating two percent inflation in a digital world is just tougher to do. Is it possible? Clearly, if you go to Argentina, very easy to get. <laughs> well, but right? there's a, that's a but, very specific. But that's because example. they have very poor inflation psychology. Right. And so Japan, if anything, they have yet to this day to break that uh, negative or low inflation psychology. The Federal Reserve, to their credit, and I think Americans as a a marketplace, we've generally uh, zeroed
0: in on that 2%. So putting aside the hyperinflation in Venezuela and the deflation in Japan, um, and let's talk about the challenge of reaching 2% in places like Europe and America, what does this tell us? about wages going forward, we've had 30 years of fairly flat net yeah. of inflation, 30 years of flat real wage gains. Yeah. What, what can workers expect going forward?
1: Well, I think modest, you know, modest increases, which I think is a positive. Uh, I think um, you know, two things I'd say about wages. One is wage growth, let's say the U.S. example, we are where we should be. Because at the end of the day, wage growth should be roughly the rate of productivity, which you and I just spoke about today. Which should, is kind of low. Kind of low. And inflation. Which is so, also kind of low, low. low. Now, I would say that I, I think wage growth will continue to mostly inch higher. And what I think is the positive, and there's always the risk that central banks overreact, that will not lead to material rise in core inflation. Mm-hmm. The wages can go up. I think I'll see a lot in the marketplace. Associate if, if wages should pick up further, it goes go from three to four percent. All core inflation, the Fed's behind the curve. Right. That's a that's a mistake in our mind because we believe that inflation, not wages, inflation are anchored, and so uh, we, you know we believe the Fed won't make necessarily that mistake and over tighten in that. So that would be good news. I, mm-hmm. I think you know, I, but I think we're going to live in this. Uh, there's several paradoxes in the world. One is low growth but full employment. Secondly, is tight labor markets yet low
0: inflation. Low growth, full employment, tight labor market, but low inflation. But yet low in- inflation. Yeah,
1: but I'm hop. So I, I think we can get from three to three and a half percent wage growth. If we're hoping for much higher wage growth, we need to see that productivity boom, you know, four or five years out, perhaps accelerate earlier uh, for us to have more sustained growth.
0: So you're describing a little bit of a Goldilocks scenario, as much as oh, don't put those words
1: in my mouth, right? please. Uh, well, they're let's, fair, but let, no. let,
0: let's let's take that apart because. Yeah. My pal Larry Kudlow would be all over. Hey, we have full employment, but no inflation. Wage growth is starting to tick up, but not so much as to force the Fed's hands. How long can those set of inputs continue yeah. into the well, future? Well, you
1: know, I, I think unfortunately, I think it may t- it may take a recession before we get some sort of uh, you know the pickup and automation, you know, and um, productivity that I think we start to pick up. Because again, mm-hmm. this is a signal that's five years out, believe it or not. Um, Listen, I, I think we're going to have a period where, you know, to this day, you know, our our, our guarded return outlook—we've had that for two or three years. Right. Uh, we haven't been soft. the only firm. We, right. we haven't been the only firm. Unfortunately, it may take a bear market to get this to get us out of this low expected return orbit. And that's no just pain, a function no gain. Evaluation. Yeah, it's no pain, no gain.
0: We were talking about the kind of positive environment we've been in, with full employment and low inflation and modest wage growth. Uh, which brings us to the question of the Federal Reserve. Given all that, do they need to keep tightening or normalizing interest rates, or are they about where they should be? I
1: think they're about where they should be. You know, We've had a longstanding view, uh, Barry, in part because of how we diagnosed um, where inflation was going to go, that the Federal Reserve uh, would be hard-pressed to ever get above 3%. And we're not like super bearish on the economy, it was right. just our diagnosis of the other trends. And um, we thought four rate hikes in 2018 was was likely. I think that because of the the, the vigor of the labor market, uh, we went into the year uh, expecting two rate hikes that would get them just below three percent in that range. We've actually backed off that given the volatility we've seen, and so so you we mean are in 2019. You're 20, spe- we're we're one. We were expecting two when we first published. And that would our bring report. us up to
0: where three. Uh, and yeah, well, we're close.
1: It would, you know, no, it would break us so two two and a, uh, two and three quarters, right? So we're still low by historical standards. Uh, but what matters is. Is the real rate, mm-hmm. not not the nominal. Um, uh, I think there are the bias uh, shifts uh, towards them cutting rates, uh, not because they made a mistake per se, but. Uh, you know I, I think we're still in a period of, of choppy uh, performance so it's one sense you know the forecast our forecast sounds like soft landing I've tried to ban that phrase uh, at Vanguard and my <laughs> colleagues because I said even if even if the ultimate landing is soft it's it's the airbags may drop in the plane like it's not going to feel uh, like it's, it's, it's going to feel choppy this year I think the economy globally will take a beating China's growing um, w- w- uh, lower than they report and uh, lower than they expected and uh, we're going to have some choppiness here in the US.
0: So they no. were at twelve percent, they've fallen to about six percent. Yeah, well, our leading
1: indicators for two years saying real feel is closer to five. Mm-hmm. So Which by uh, the way, we would still be not bailed with
0: five percent in the United States. Yeah. Uh, I mean Yeah,
1: and there were there were they're you know, they're doing a tightrope, right? I mean they are what we call this fight and retreat mode. You know, when they have softness, they'll stimulate a little bit. Uh, but the trend is down. Part of that is good news. Um, but I think the the, the trade uncertainties uh, you know, really damaged, uh, I think, consumer confidence in China. Uh, really? So this slowdown is different from past China slowdowns in that the consumer uh, is more at the epicenter of the slowdown. I, I, again, we are not calling for a hard landing in China, nor a recession in the U.S. Uh, but you're, when you have the two largest economies, uh, set up for some weakness. Um, you know that this this nagging uh, concern of recession, I don't think will dissipate entirely this year.
0: So let's talk a little bit about China and trade um, yeah. because it, it, it's such a fascinating area, especially in light of some of the pushback to globalization. I wanna I wanna pull a paragraph um, out from something you had written previously. Fifteenth century China had been open to trade. And it was at the time the top economy of the world. Its navy was larger than the British navy would be three centuries later. Subsequently, in the Ming dynasty, they closed off the country and there was a 500 year decline in China's innovation. Explain.
1: Well, I think, you know, China's history, um, you know, really a glorious history, I think is a testament. Um, to the power uh, of globalization, the openness to other ideas, as well as the risks that societies face should they close their minds uh, and their walls to, to competition and new ideas. I mean, China missed the Industrial Revolution because they closed off to the West. Now, if you also—I've read a lot of China history to educate myself— not having been born in China, uh, but I visit there, and what you do read at the same time is, you know, the the the, the West, uh, you know, is is not um, does not escape from criticism, and how we and ch- how we contributed or, or shaped some China policies in the 18th and 19th century, mm-hmm. right? It goes back to the Opium Wars in the in the British. So um, I, I think you know, the more you read China history, the more you read two things. One is, um, you know, their 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 will as well as their belief to rise back to where they were at the leading economy great in the power. world, the great power. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a line from Confucius, a uh, great quote, There shall not be two stars in the sky, uh, nor two emperors on earth. It's a, it can be a little unnerving in today's environment between sure. this, uh, between the U.S. and China. I, I don't think it has to be as adversarial um, as, as some fear, um, but I think, you know, the tensions that we see, um, economic um, technology, military wise between the U.S. and China, and that's just—I think—that's going to be with us for some time. Um, uh, but Ch- China, um, China has a roughly a fifteen to twenty-year window to escape what, what everyone calls the middle-income trap, right? To get wealthier, middle-average household income. They've they've sh- they've astounded the world. And their progress today, mankind has never seen in recorded history the amount and the, the rapidity of economic development. Um, but they're not out of the woods. I mean, I think it's been risky to discount China, mm-hmm. um, but um, you know they they have some challenges to work through. The demographic challenge that they face over the next 30
0: 40 years is the biggest one. Well, that single child policy is turns out to well, have their population is of-
1: going to drop 40 percent. Just think about that. Yeah, 40 percent over this century.
0: Those are the unintended consequences yeah. of that sort of social engine engineering number one, but still, given how rapidly their quasi-centrally planned economy yeah. has grown, is there any reason to think they can't become the dominant economic power? They happen to be well, the least be the largest, expensive yeah. stock market in the yes,
1: world. Yes. I mean states. and, that, and that, well, I think here's the thing. I, I love how you just mentioned that, Barry, because you, you've you've hit on this for a long time. Um, and so I'm gonna say this as an economist. Um, I think uh, economic growth is often, for investors, is focused on too much. So I could show you a chart, and we were showing this for a decade, actually in the depths of 2009, 2010. I show you a nice handy dandy chart that shows this the, the relationship between long run economic growth of a country and its stock returns.
0: Hardly correlated. Yeah, there's at a all.
1: zero correlation. It looks like a shotgun on mm-hmm. a page. Which, as an economist, you kind of not well, kind of talking yourself out of a job. But <laughs> I think that's important because it's like more, ma- rather more than expected growth. It's the price paid for growth. Mm-hmm. It's valuation. That's why, yeah, I would say markets so such value as matters. the UK, China matters. That's why you know even as the economic performance has been languished. At times in the US, we were very optimistic on US investment returns. You can see our first outlook in 2009-2010. Mm-hmm. Some just, we, thought, we, we thought we'd thought we be above average historical returns. If anything, we were too low in our distribution. Right. We got above the mean. Um, now, as the economy has gotten closer to full employment, every year we've gotten more conservative and guarded in our investment returns.
0: It's because of the valuation you point to. So, so good rule of thumb, markets get cut in half, not the worst time in the world to buy equities. It's, it's not. So let's circle back to... The financial crisis that you mentioned—Are we still feeling the effects of that crisis today, more than ten years later?
1: I think we are globally. I mean, the the that sort of tight grip has continues to recede. Um, I I, th- I think you see it even from some investors um, waiting for the next shoe to drop. Um, you know, I the think risk aversion, the and, risk aversion savings. I mean, you know, some of it in the U.S. probably needed. I think we got a little bit better balanced. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, we've clearly seen it in, in, in the regulatory front across various markets over the past several years. Um, you know, with every passing day, though, it, it kind of recedes in the rearview mirror. Um, so we're, we're not fully out of the woods, but we have come a long way.
0: So the the low growth that we've been talking about, the low mm-hmm. productivity, soft GDP, um Again, is that a hangover effect of the crisis, or is there something else? Well, it there? was
1: it was part. I mean, we overconsumed, as you know, many of your past uh, guests have have illuminated. But again, it's that's where we focused on the trend. The trend was starting to bend in two thousand one, two thousand and two, which is why we come back to productivity. And again, I don't, I, I would hope that um, you know, that your listeners. Uh, I, I don't I, I do not wish or, or intend to be portrayed as a techno optimist. I mean I, I think there are reasons to be optimistic mm-hmm. but you know productivity will pick up that I, that I have high conviction in. Um, over the next several years. And it's an environment of potentially higher growth that no one is, is anticipating the same way in the mid-90s. No one was anticipating the late 90s. But that does not mean there's not going to be headwinds and challenges. The, 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 the need for job training, as an example, on automation, if we're right in the pickup on automation, is significant, even if we do not have widespread job losses. I mean, there could be a very well 10 years from now, companies on average may be spending more for job retraining than they will be on IT. Hmm. So that you know, that's the sort of thing I, I just you know, and that's not again. It's there's cautious optimism in my, in my in my counsel to my daughter, but it's not Pollyannish. I mean, there's challenges we all face, and uh, the technology can cut both ways. So so,
0: so let's stay with the concept of yeah. the advantages of the exchange of ideas in global yeah. trade. Yeah. How do you square that with what we've seen in terms of? The rise of popularism, the United States pulling out from TPP and the Paris yep. Accord, yep. And a number of other um, policies and, and trade pacts, and even um, the UK and Brexit. Yep. Are we moving away from globalization?
1: Well, it's, it's, it's certainly stalled if you define globalization traditionally, which is fair, uh, by trade. I mean, mm-hmm. our, our idea multiplier rises above that and say, although trade does matter, it's the trade of ideas, of knowledge, the exposure. If I'm exposed to your idea, Barry, even if you live halfway away in the world, and that leads me to a new idea that has what has changed history. Now, trade sometimes in, encapsulates an idea—a trade for a new machine or product—and so you can infer knowledge. But I think we have stalled in, in the in, in the globalization of trade of goods across borders. Mm-hmm. The biggest reason for the rise in, in populism, and related to that, is the rise of income inequality. And I think a lot of academic research would show um, that more of it has been driven by technology than by uh, potentially unfair trade practices. Um, so what that means is if the pace of techno- technological change is not slowing, that means unfortunately the rate of the, the, the level of income inequality may remain high. And so these um, what some call populistic populism tensions in the world mm-hmm. uh, may remain elevated. Uh, that that had told us two years ago that like any at any election where in a country where income inequality has risen significantly, I would say the election is going to be closer than anticipated shot can be shocked at the outcome. I'm right. not a political handicapper, but it says that we should expect surprises. Um, because I think there is um, again back to this happiness can be relative. The rise of income inequality um, in a low growth environment, um, you know, has led to uh, you know some painful losses of some jobs, uh, opportunities, mm-hmm. uh, including in the United States. And so I, I think that's something that not to lose sight of.
0: So rising income inequality mm-hmm. gives gives rise to increase in populism. It can. It can. Which gives rise to closer elections. And does that mean political parties carry less sway and people vote? That I don't
1: know. You know, I, I wish. As I'm trying to be careful here with my statements, I, mm. I wish though the political environment wasn't so um, polarized. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I uh, you know, it's, you know, it, it's, it's. I think it's natural and it's actually a healthy environment when we're debating. But if we're debating and listening, you know, what I hope where I worry about is when in any in any society, forget politics for this time, any society that we're not listening to each other. And so we're talking beyond each other. And,
0: and today we see the backlash effect when you present facts to people, it just hardens their position if they don't want to accept those facts. We have been speaking with Joe Davis of Vanguard, where he is chief economist and wears a number of other hats. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing technology, productivity, global trade, and idea multipliers and what they mean for the future. Uh, We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz uh, or check out my daily column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to having this conversation. Um, you spoke at a conference we hosted I want to say about a year ago in yeah. Southern California, and you touched on some of the ideas yeah. from um, the idea multiplier and the long-term yep. trend of of global exchange of ideas. So I knew this was going to be a very interesting conversation. Some of the questions I didn't get to were the traditional boring economic questions. <laughs> so I'm going to skip most of those and and just ask you, a couple of short economic yeah. questions that I'm kind of I'll, I'll keep intrigued. the responses short. Well, you go yeah, on as yeah. you could you can answer them in yeah. as much depth as you like, <laughs> but there I'm not asking you what do you think of GDP? I want to say, well, let me ask this question. What do you think are the most important economic indicators? I know people mm. overemphasize some and underemphasize, um, underemphasize others. What do you think are the three most important things that we should be looking
1: at? I'll, I'll give you a we, we I generally believe this, and we do this. We look at all of them. Right. So we, we for a long time, since I've been a Vanguard, we use big data techniques to say, listen, every signal, every economic statistic, jobless claims, mm-hmm. non-farm payroll, uh, manufacturingism, they all have some signal in it and noise. Think of any stock. Right. I don't think you may necessarily look at one stock to say how's the broad market doing so we we, I, we look at all of them mm-hmm. and say what is the an extract from that what is the the momentum and the common signal across the broad economy because right. every indicator goes through fits and starts of saying being very valuable and then not being valuable. right so I I'd say that that's that the answer to your question is we look at all of them right and then extract from that what are the common two or three signals that you could say this is the the trend and, and the momentum in the economy, uh, rather than pick any one
0: signal. Mm-hmm. So so the flip side of that question is, what do you think is the most overhyped economic indicator? Um, well, I think GDP. Right. We, uh, we put too much emphasis I, on I think that.
1: we do. I mean, I think there's a lot of accounting regulators. I mean, there's you know GDP GDP can can accelerate for a time just because businesses are are have slowed uh, their growth and inventories are building, right? right. And that I looks mean, like so GDP. There's a little interest. bit of bean counting to it. Again, it's valuable to have came right. out of even war planning, you know, decades ago. World um, War One, World War Two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's decades ago, they, they actually uh, government officials did not know uh what the economy was producing and so to track that um so a great great development but has its limitations i mean if i was going to focus on one at the end of the day it's it's job growth if you and i are running a business to add a new worker to let a worker go that that's uh that's a significant investment 60 70 percent of uh corporate american
0: costs uh cost structure so job growth is probably the most meaningful what about yield curve? We heard a whole lot of yelling and screaming when the two and the five year yeah. briefly inverted, not the traditional two and ten year. How do you look at yield curve? What well, it- and again, you
1: know, in Vanguard and there's we got statistics on our back
0: at our back saying, oh,
1: listen, I believe there's a portfolio of indicators you should look at whether trying to devane... The future returns of the stock market, probability of recession, odds of a bear market. Um, but that said, if I was going to pick one indicator to, to say, are we going into recession or not, it is the yield curve. Right. And it's the traditional, what I would call the academic one. It's two and ten, ten. Uh, ten. No, tens and and, and three months, tens, tens months and cash. 90, yeah, that's the that's the most accurate. It's the most genuine. I know some said, "Hey, in a zero interest rate environment, low interest rate environment, it's distorted." I don't buy it. If we're you and I, if we're going into a, a deep downturn, I imagine the ten year treasury could be a one sure. percent, and that curve is easily inverting. So I think that's the bond market has.
0: It gives you more heads up on a downturn than the stock market does. Mm-hmm. Now, what we've seen, when at least with the two and the 10, yeah. is it can give you a lead time of about a year, if yeah. my memory serves. Uh, the three-month and the 10-year, similar? Or? Similar,
1: it's actually a little bit farther out, right? Really? Because the market's forward-looking, and at least- Past 40 to 50 years, not not to blame the Fed, but the Fed has generally been in overly restrictive territory to, to tamp down inflation, right? So the twos have been elevated above the the tens. Uh, uh, I mean, excuse me, above cash. You know, uh, a year out. You know, anticipating further Fed tightening at that point, perhaps the market's pricing in a quote-unquote Fed mistake or overly restrictive. Uh-huh. That's the power of the yield curve. It's not infallible. Um, but if you were going to pick one indicator, and I wouldn't, because you're reducing your odds of success. But if you did, that would be the one to hang your hat on.
0: So we mentioned the hangover effect that we're still feeling from the Great Financial Crisis. Let me bring this back to rates and the yield curve. Back in the late '70s, when inflation had spiked dramatically, the oil, yeah. uh, the Arab oil embargo, uh, plus the malaise of Vietnam and Watergate. Then Fed Chief Paul Volcker spiked yeah. rates to pick a number, fifteen percent. It yeah. broke the back of inflation. Yeah. And then we were looking at a thirty plus year yeah. bull market in bonds as rates gradually fell from there. How do you since you look at trend and momentum, how do you contextualize those two? It appears that the that trend line has been broken. Yes. And the momentum is now yep. moving in a different direction. What does that tell us about bonds? And the state of the world.
1: Well, I think, you know, the, the, actually the, the pattern of, of bond yields. So I know, again, including Vanguard's founder, Jack Bogle, rest mm-hmm. in peace, long believer in mean reversion. I, why I'm bringing this up is I think mean reversion is clearly the most powerful force in finance. It's uh-huh. also the most dangerous. And I use interest rates as an example because even at Vanguard, we've had some clients, you know, understandably concerned of a rapid rise in, in, in interest rates. Sure. In bond yields because they live through the 70s Well, from and a, very a very low level. From a very low level, yes. But, you know, concerns of a bond bear market. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our analysis said that although possible, extremely unlikely. And that's what just because interest rates are low today doesn't mean they have to revert to some ar- to, to some average. My question right. is, what's the danger in mean reversion is what mean are we reverting to? This is the same mistake I, we believe some investors have made over the past several years with the CAPE, the Shiller-CAPE ratio. Uh-huh. Nothing wrong with the sickle-adjusted PE ratio or the level of interest rates, but what is normal? That's conditional on what are the forces that drive those factors. So in interest rates, for example, I believe that a fair value, our fair value for long-term interest rates hasn't changed in the U.S. It's roughly 3%. Right. So even though that's below where the 70s and 80s average was, inflation was higher then. So I would tell investors, if you if you worry about or believe that interest rates are going to rise materially, long-term interest rates, mortgage rates, 10-year treasury rates, you have to believe that inflation is fundamentally going to accelerate on a
0: trend basis. So let, let's talk about the CAPE. You brought it up. Yeah. Going back to the early 1990s, the CAPE has spent, I think it's something like 93% of yeah. the time- above its average trend is there no mean regression there or are we using and thinking about cape incorrectly it- doesn't seem to yeah. Be much well, I of think a- the, yeah.
1: So the valuation, great research. I mean, the Cape going back to, to Bob Schiller at Yale and others. You know that 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 measure is 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 informative for the whether the stock market is fairly valued. Our issue is with investors comparing that to the long run average. So they just draw a line across their piece of paper. Right. The Cape's been sometimes below, and to your point, Barry, it's been generally above ever s- the past twenty years. Well what what's actually important is is that you actually have to control for what the, what is the fair value that the market should the gravitational pull should go to it shouldn't always go to the same average right and so our analysis and we had a re- academic research published uh, last year they show that you can actually significantly improve your 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 likelihood of projecting five and ten year out returns significantly, uh-huh. if you control for the level of interest
0: rates, real interest rates in the economy. In other words, when you have really low interest rates, rates you should and have higher low inflation. You should
1: have higher PEs. All else equal, it's called right. the fair value. Just like sometimes full employment's at four, sometimes it's at five percent. Right. Sometimes fair value for the U.S. dollar is higher low. Now again. I, I do not know exactly what the fair value is, but I can tell you that the range that the stock market should gravitate towards, either up towards it or down towards it, mm-hmm. that fair value can change through time if economic conditions and trend conditions warrant it, and that which is why only in the past year have we did we become more guarded in the stock market. So despite low growth environment and low interest rates. Our indicators were saying that the the U.S. stock market was clearly undervalued in 2009, 2010, despite some saying it's a new normal and all that. On the investment side, we were saying a very high expected return premium for U.S. stocks that remained pretty constructive up until more recently. And only recently did the U.S. stock market and the CAPE ratio break above that fair value range. Mm -hmm. And again, we have no predictability on next year's return. But it does have some predictability, and where the stock market, the average return will be over the next five or ten years. So, right. is there a mean reversion? Yes, but I think we just have to be careful what mean we are reverting to, whether so, it's interest rates or
0: valuations. So, therefore, with elevated um, valuations in the U.S., I'm going to assume your expected returns for the next decade is going to be below average.
1: Yeah. Oh, certainly, and we've we've had that for for over three years. Um, You know, actually, this year is the first time that we did not materially downgrade our expected 10-year return outlook for a balanced portfolio further, right? So we've been getting more guarded every year as the markets have actually rewarded us on average, so uh, a little bit more constructive outside the U.S. over the next five or 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the U.S., uh, so I think smart investors, you know, even, even a simple contrarian strategy of rebalancing uh, is probably putting more money to work at the margin outside of the U.S. and keeping money in the fixed income Um, You know, our our long drumbeat has almost been boring, uh, quite frankly, of there's there's greater risk in in the equity market than the bond market. That's why you you would want there as a long-term investor, but also let's be cautious of
0: of taking too much risk in this market. Greater risk in the equity market than the bond market today. So last question about valuation. There was a Wall Street Journal article, I want to say, a month or so ago, or maybe it was a couple of weeks ago, that said, hey, that whole... Uh, fourth quarter 2018 pullback of almost 20%, yeah. reset valuations to the point where they seem to be sort of reasonable in the U.S., yeah, exaggeration or or no?
1: I mean, they actually were back into our fair value range, uh, first time in, in over two years. So that's mm-hmm. a general good thing. We, we're still looking for muted, you know, a little bit more muted returns, just because um, we have lower expected returns for the risk-free rate for the cash rate, the Fed fund right. rate, uh, and that hasn't changed. We've been, you know, we've been on that mind for a long time. So, uh, but yeah, we I do not, you know, we, we're not alarmist on the market. Um, I think you know the investment environment going forward. We've said for two years, Barry, it's it's going to require diligence and patience. And I'm not mm-hmm. a patient person because you have a low expected return, but you can't avoid to miss periods when when that risk premium is rewarding you. So, you know, I think the temptation is going to be to what I call shiny new objects to get <laughs> a higher return. You know, not to say that that some, you know, you just got to be careful here. I, I think you got to just stay, s- stick to the plan. If you're going to take stay on more risk, of course. Well, and if you're going to take on more risk, just do it eyes wide open. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean one doesn't change one's plan. I just think that our my job at Vanguard and my team's job is just to help convey the risk and the trade-offs of investors trying to make tough choices under uncertainty. More more often than not, it's it's a good reason not to change when you under, when you understand where the risks are. Um, but, but that shouldn't mean that investors don't necessarily never you know don't ever change. Uh, it's just let's be let's be mindful of, of what the trade-off we're making.
0: So I know I only have you for yeah. a, a limited amount of time, and I wanted to get to my favorite questions. Let let's, uh, and I know you get to listen to these when you're out running yes. on Saturday mornings. So let me uh, let me jump right into this. Uh, tell us the most important thing people don't know about Joe Davis. So the the the, the little
1: personal thing is, I grew up ten minutes from Vanguard's building. Which is is astonishing to me. Astonishing. If I actually had an arm, if I could have actually played baseball professionally, I could probably hit my my parents' house. The other thing is uh, I was actually, to my understanding, I was one of the few, if perhaps the only non-academic to have been led in the National Bureau of Economic Research. See, when I did my dissertation, it was on economic history. Mm -hmm. Not a very popular topic. It's kind of had a renaissance. So wait, your PhD is
0: history, not economics? No, it's economics. But I did it.
1: I, I created an effectively... A, a pre-GDP, GDP measure going all the way back to the 1790s. Uh, I didn't know what I was getting into. If I would known how much work it w- was, Barry, <laughs> I would have never have done it. Uh, for the 19th century, an annual measure of business cycles and economic activity. And um, I was, you know, the, the, the MBR researchers at the time were very courteous uh, to allow me to, to, to participate formally. Uh, eventually they kicked me out because I'm, I'm in the private sector. I think that's fair. But to this day, I'm a, I'm a fervent reader and participant in economic history.
0: Huh. Quite, quite fascinating. Who were some of your early mentors?
1: Uh, but the first was before I came to Vanguard. So after my first year at Duke in the PhD program, I actually, uh, I left because I was unsure if I wanted to go into academia. And I worked for a company right in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Again, five minutes from where I grew up, so I, I don't. I tend to stay close to home here, Barry, as a theme. Uh, and I worked for now what's called, um, you know, Moody'sEconomy.com. Oh, sure. So I worked with Mark Zandi. A great experience. Uh, I learned from Mark uh, some of the things they, they they you don't learn as an economist in grad school. The economic data, how to really write well for a, particularly a non-academic audience, how to present to a to a large audience with not being too SOT. Herrick, uh, so he was a great mentor. I learned a lot.
0: And Zandi, if memory serves, was a chief economic advisor to Vice President Biden. Is that right? I think he was. In yeah. fact, he's
1: he's a, he's now a, a, a close neighbor of mine, and actually, I see him running sometimes on the weekends. So uh, again, I, I have high praise for Mark. Another early uh, mentor was Bob Outwater at Vanguard. He took chances on me. He could have hired any economist. Now, I was the only economist at Vanguard, so maybe didn't have much choice. But <laughs> Bob, Bob was the head of fixed income. He was tough. He was demanding. He was also fair. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot from him. And uh, again, I will always owe Bob and as many others at Vanguard for taking chances on me. So
0: let's talk about investors who influence the way you look at the world of uh, data and valuation and investing. I'll
1: give you two. Um, I'll give you three. Uh, one is uh, you know Jack Bogle clearly. Um, uh, I knew uh, of his work and was educating myself before I came to Vanguard, but I, I, then I realized how much I did not know. Um, secondly, was even something I started reading in high school, Burt Malkiel, Random Walk Down Wall sure. Street. It was one of the first books around investments that I ever read, mm-hmm. Barry.
0: Now uh, and its like 11th yeah, edition or I something. I think I had to read
1: it twice because I didn't understand it all the first time. Um, and then more recently, you know, uh, individuals such as Cliff Asness... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, at AQR, um, you know, I'm a fan of their research, and I think they, they do good work. And I think they treat data with the humility and respect it deserves.
0: Huh. So you mentioned a couple of books earlier, as well as Random Walk Down Wall Street. Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they finance or not, oh. fiction or not. What what do you like, and what are you reading? Well, you know, some of the recent stuff that I was reading around the idea multiplier. I'll give
1: you one: the Idea Factory. John Gardner. Sure. So, uh, fascinating study around Bell Labs, f- always going back to the 20s, pre-lucent these- days. Ah, oh, wonderful. I mean, there's a great story if you even wonder where the fray or the word cell phone came from. Uh, and there's stories of them trying to test radio cell towers in, an, in at, at nighttime in Philly, driving around because they didn't know how to to where to put the antenna. I mean, it's mm-hmm. some great stories. Uh, I'm a ver- uh, great reader of. Uh, I try to read a lot on 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 um, uh, political and economic history. So. Uh, anything written by uh, David McCulloch. Uh, you know the sure. Wright brothers is his best. Uh, it's a fascinating book, uh, in my in my judgment. Uh, I've read a lot on. Um, if you want to read a, a little bit more of a, an alarming uh, study on between the tensions of the U.S. and China, you can. Build Michael Pillsbury, the Hundred Year Marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but it's it's worth a read. Um, I also, uh, my wife and I love to cook, so I have some favorite cookbooks. We probably have Do over a hundred of them. If you want, really? If, if you care about good barbecue, my friend at Vanguard, he turned me on to Franklin's Barbecue. So it's a barbecue. Franklin's and Barbecue. It, I it love is, barbecue. It is. I I think I've underlined more in that book than I have my economics textbooks in grad school. If you want to know how to c- cook great brisket, um, and barbecue. That's easy. Uh, you just cook the hell out of it. You, no, no. But I tell you, this book at uh, Franklin, they give you everything. It's it's a famous... I believe they're in Austin, Texas. So I've never been to the,
0: the restaurant, but I've read their book. It's worth a read. You've been to Austin, I assume. Yes. That's a great, uh, a great food yeah. town. Yeah, it is. So when you say you and your wife love to cook... Do you prepare meals together? Do you do a... Uh... Well, we'll split up. She does the hard stuff,
1: which is the baking. She's very precise measuring. Right. Um, despite all my analytical background, I find cooking therapeutic. I, I only look in the ingredient list. I never measure. Uh-huh. So I can never replicate anything I do. That, of course, implies that it actually tasted good. But... Mm. Uh, I find it is actually a good uh, creative release, uh, whether it's cutting vegetables or just spending time with the family. Uh, I think it's you know my my big uh, turning point was
0: not worrying whether or not the dish turns out right. We I was we, always worried
1: about making a mistake.
0: That that's quite fascinating. We Sunday night we have a, a shelf full of cookbooks. That's we awesome. pull a cookbook yeah. out, and Sunday evening dinner is always yeah. a new recipe. Sometimes it's delightful. And sometimes not, but yeah. it's that process of just messing around in the Isn't kitchen. It fun? And it's creative. It's fantastic because right? I'm not a creative
1: person, you know, and so I, I found that really. You are. Important. Your
0: research is creating new ways of analyzing things like. Well, an I'll idea take it as it. a compliment. Economists don't always get the creative. Uh, that's you know, that's label. fair. <laughs> so, tell us about what excites you now. What what changes are you looking forward to in the industry? Well, you know, I'm, you know, being
1: part of Vanguard, it's a great company to be a part of. I'm proud of our culture. I'm, I'm excited about just all investors globally. Uh, I think um, they're going to have a great opportunity for lower cost, the adoption of what I think is a high value technology. Which is low cost portfolios. I think we're still only on the third or fourth inning of this United States.
0: Barrier. What is it? Fifteen percent of total yeah, assets. Yeah, but but again, if you, I, I look at in the, world?
1: the I look at the inverse of that, which is probably roughly fifty percent of investments, perhaps are still in too high cost products.
0: Right. So index. I mean, I'm, I'm saying is fifteen. No, is I in index, no, I know but, I'm saying, but you're saying 50, fifty is overpriced.
1: Fifty percent is probably still in. Two, in. In. A, if you say a low cost, high value product actively managed passively managed perhaps uh rapid voice around that uh that's the adoption of of a wonderful technology mm-hmm. that i think if there's an s-curve to it in the u.s we're probably only in the third or fourth inning and in, outside the united states we're probably in the in the the game just the, the first inning just started so i'm i'm excited for investors regardless of who who's firm we can bring those. Ser- who, who brings them those services? But it's an exciting time, I think, to be an investor, quite, despite
0: the low return environment. Quite, quite fascinating. So, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, too, I, I mean, I failed a lot. Uh, I always thought I'd, I'd play in the NFL
1: until I realized I'm only five foot nine.
0: <laughs> so that that. Uh, well, did you play
1: in high school and college? I played in high school. I was lucky enough to be on the team. Uh, so mm-hmm. I learned a lot of failure athletically. I tend to be a better student. Um, so I, I learned humility early in life. But I tell you, one time that stuck with me and I failed, I, you know, I generally got very good grades, which is why you go to grad school. I try to stay in school as long as possible. I'm with you. My first class down <laughs> in Duke in the Ph.D. program was for game theory. So leading uh, teacher in, in, in world game theory, Hervé Moulin. And the first test, I knew I didn't do well, but he writes on the board what the average was. It was a 12. I got an 8 now, I was realized- I This thought, is not out of 100. I, it was out of 100. Really? I, I didn't realize it was out of 100. I'm assuming maybe it's out uh, of 30. 20, right. Oh, I got an 8 out so of 20. So that was the wake-up call. So what the lesson was of failing, uh, I came close to <laughs> actually failing that class. First, all, I realized two things. One is I'm never going to be a microeconomist. Right. Secondly, you're not as smart, Joe, as you think you are. <laughs> And so uh, I think I, I like to think I'm a humble person, but every so often, as my mom says, it's, it's good to ha- eat a little humble pie. And so that was a great lesson to me, the need for hard work. It was also a testament that is if you work hard enough, you can learn a lot of things. And so to this day, that, that test is seared in my, in my brain of, you know, when those days happen, because they do happen, you can recover if you're willing to put in the hard work.
0: What do you do for fun? What do you do when you're out of the office? Oh, it's, time I, it's
1: time with my family. My wife, uh, we've been together a long time, ever since college, mm-hmm. uh, when she accepted my offer for a first date. I'm a lucky man. Two children who are growing up quickly. I have 15- and 13-year-old uh, who weren't born yet when I came to Vanguard. So, right. uh um, Vanguard I, I, babies. Is yeah, that a thing? Yeah, maybe. But uh, I mean I try to I try to read as much I I I'm a firm believer, I'm a believer in reading. I believe everyone should read. This is just my humble opinion, at least three hours a day.
0: Three hours. Three hours. I, th- I think you and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. I
1: try. I try to get up early to read. I I make up for lost time on the weekend. Uh, but if it's not spent with a family, you'll probably find me either re- reading history or the latest technology or, or math uh, to keep abreast of technology trends. I I don't care as much of what I am reading as long as I feel like I'm being intellectually um, challenged and in, remaining intellectually curious. So you. You still a runner? Or are you doing running? Oh, just, I just try to stay, fi- you know, just try to stay fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, i realize realizing with every passing day, my metabolism is slower right. than the day before. So, uh, Again, I, I also find I'm actually better at research and creativity when the more I do work out. So hmm. I, I've gotten less into the heavyweights like TRX, kettlebells. Right. Well, Bill McNabb, obviously. You know, yeah, I know Bill. chairman of, He turned me on to a lot of different exercises. Uh, he's great. So I'm, I should ask him what's his next latest uh, you know, exercise technique. I,
0: I've become intrigued by two exercises that are so different. One is rowing. Oh, my son rose. And the other is boxing.
1: Boxing, yes. I have I installed it, we got we last uh, last uh, Christmas, a boxing down in our basement, a boxing mm-hmm. bag. So uh speed bag or a heavy no, bag? No, heavy bag. Yeah. Uh, it hurts it uh, hurts the wrist when you first start, but yes. it is worth it. it's a good sweat. i i I've been doing that in the winter because sometimes you can't run on right. the weekend with the ice, but uh Yeah. It's like whatever you do, as long as you diversify a little bit, keeps up the
0: excitement. A question I should have asked you earlier, but I'm finding that there's some fascinating answers to this. What was the year-making model of your first car? Oh, man.
1: I was 16. My parents said if you get good enough grades, you can actually drive to school, which was a big deal. Right. It was a Chevy Cavalier, white probably a uh,
0: 86 85 right. that is a yeah. piece of crap <laughs> but but to guys like you and I cars meant freedom. so I was actually very I don't fortunate. think it I don't well, think it means the same thing yeah to kids but you today. know my
1: parents I give my parents you know they they you know I was actually lucky and fortunate to have my own car I was 16 but and I that was them. nicer than my first well but, but, and, and my <laughs> da, but what my daddy always said in Institutes such a lesson like you have to pay for your own insurance and you have to pay for all the gas so, so go it's get not a, a free job. ride. So go right. get
0: a job, and uh, and by the way, you have to keep up the grades while you do it. So that that's quite interesting. So our final two questions: uh, A millennial or recent college grad comes up to you and says they're interested in a career in finance. What sort of advice would you give them?
1: I go back to that what I said before: read, read, read. Mm-hmm. I mean, three hours a day, everything that the that's going on in the profession and everything tangential to that practitioner research books of the leading authorities in the field. I mean, creating new, so in my field, of investment research or even portfolio management, Barry, if we can stand on the shoulders of what others have written, that's mm-hmm. like 90% of the task. Sure. And so if you can just have a good understanding of what other smart people have commented about, that is the context that allows you to incrementally perhaps contribute to the debate. So read, read, read what I'd be doing on both the math side and the history. I think the one mistake the economics profession
0: made pre GFC is too much math, too little history. Huh. That makes perfect sense. And our final question What is it that you know about the world of economics and investing today that you wish you knew 25, 30 years oh, ago? I underestimated the
1: power of compounding. Really? I, I knew saving was important. My parents, my dad turned me on to Vanguard investing uh, with my summer lawn mowing and uh, construction money. But, uh, I tell you this, I mean, so I told you before I had really learned the benefits of Vanguard Investing, 1997, 98, uh, I'm down in grad school. I'm using, I am using. was using Amazon as early as 95. Mm-hmm. If you remember ordering Amazon in 95, you'd get a free coffee mug with a new book. I had to write them to say, stop sending me coffee mugs. <laughs> I owned Amazon stock in 97. And I and sold it in 2001. For and like single digits, right? To, to this day, I Eight refuse bucks? to I refuse to calculate what I've lost. But power That's of hilarious. compounding staying invested in the markets, that was something since I've learned at Vanguard.
0: Joe, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. We have been speaking with Joe Davis, chief economist and uh, chief cook and bottle washer over at the Vanguard Group. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of our other 250 or so such conversations that we've held over the previous five years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast@bloomberg.net. at bloomberg.net. Go over to iTunes, give us a five-star review if you enjoy this conversation. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack team, who helps put this together each week. Medina Parwana is our producer and audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.